you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 21. It's not in the bulletin, but I thought we'd begin there, uh, since the Apostle Paul will be making an argument in Galatians uh, from uh, Genesis as well as Isaiah. So we're going to be a bit in the Old Testament, uh, so have your Bible at hand. If you need a Bible, uh, just raise your hand and somebody can bring you one as well. And it's very important for us to see that this is the Word of God and to see what God uh, says to us. Before we come to God's word, uh, let's pray that he might bless this word to us. Let's pray. Father, with joy, may we hear your word, and may we rejoice and join in the praises of the Jerusalem above, uh, the heavenly homeland of your people. And so, Father, fill us with rejoicing, fill us with joy in your word, knowing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has truly secured for us a great hope, even new life, a new creation forevermore. And so, Father, help us to see these things for Jesus' sake and his glory. Amen. So Genesis chapter 21, it's on page 15 if you need it. And we'll read the first 10 verses. And this is coming after the Lord had promised an heir, a son, uh, to Abraham And though Abraham had grown old and Sarah, his wife, had grown old, here we find the Lord fulfilling his promise in the midst of all human impossibility. Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age." And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, saying, So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And we're going to turn now to Galatians chapter 4 in the New Testament. And we will read verses 21 through verse 1 of chapter 5. And again, if you need the page, it's on page 974. Galatians 4, verse 21. The Apostle Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, 
Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as God has given his people great promises, the way in which he brings them to fulfillment is often very surprising and very shocking. And God is very intentional in doing that because he desires that as we see the fulfillment of his promises, that we recognize that the power by which they were accomplished, uh, the means by which they were brought about, was not earthly means. It was not the means that any man provided, but God himself is the one who acted. God himself is to receive all glory as he fulfills his great promises to his people. And especially as we see as the Lord had promised an heir, right? Throughout the Old Testament, there's this longing and this looking forward to a son who would be born. A son who would conquer the serpent. A son who would ascend the throne of David. A son who would inherit the nations, right? So there's this great emphasis on God's promise of a son throughout the Old Testament. And that God might show us that it's he who provides this son to come. It's he who acts. It's, he, it's his power at work. We also see throughout the Old Testament then many barren women. Uh, women who are unable uh, to bear children, right? They are barren. We see this first and foremost with Sarah. Notice in Genesis uh, chapter 11 uh, with me. Genesis chapter 11. The first thing we read about Sarah has to do with this very uh, reality. Genesis 11 should be verse 30, but we'll read beginning at verse 29 talking about Abram, right? So when we're first introduced to Abraham, right, and all that Paul has to say is argument revolves around Abraham because the false teachers were appealing to Abraham saying that the church must receive circumcision, the church must obey the regulations of the old covenant uh, because we are sons of Abraham. Paul's saying, no, uh, that's not the case. And so Paul is now appealing to Abraham And notice again what Scripture says, the law of God says first regarding Abram. Abram here, he'll later become known as Abraham as God changes his name. But verse 29 of Genesis 11 says that Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. She'll be called Sarah later. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Izcah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child, right? It's the first thing we're told about Sarai. Right? And the point here, and the reason is that as God brings Abram through this time of testing of his faith, is that Abraham and the rest of his children by faith might recognize that it's God himself who will provide this son, this heir, who will bring salvation and who will bring blessing to the nations. It's not simply just the product of of human nature. It's not simply the product of man, but God himself providing and bringing and infusing into the situation 
uh, his power and his grace, not only with Sarah, but this theme continues throughout the scriptures. I know many of you are probably familiar with this, right? Barren women throughout the scripture and God providing for them in a supernatural way. So notice also uh, Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. Here we read of of the birth of Esau and Jacob. Verse 19 of that chapter says, These are the generations of Isaac. So Isaac was the son supernaturally born uh, to Abraham and Sarah. But here it says that the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Right, And so again, barrenness pointing to the fact that the son, the savior, the seed, the offspring to come would not come through human might and human strength, but divine strength, supernatural power. Also, Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. So Isaac has uh, Jacob as a son. And now notice of Jacob's wife, uh, Rachel. Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? We'll end our reading there of that, of that portion. All right? So again, as, as we look at the beginnings of the covenant of God's grace, of the promise given to Abraham, generation after generation, uh, the one through whom the promise would continue, the woman w- was barren. And again, the point, just to say it for probably a third or fourth or maybe fifth time, is that, the, that God wants us to see that the promise comes not through human strength, not by the works of our hands, and not by the simple natural course of this world, but supernaturally from God. That those born are not born according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's the major theme that runs throughout the Scriptures. And this is why the Apostle Paul begins to talk about our mother. Who is your mother, at least spiritually speaking? And the Apostle Paul wants us to recognize that our mother is not, by which we have been born spiritually, is not the flesh, according to the Jerusalem below, but spiritually, according to the Jerusalem that is above, the heavenly Jerusalem. And notice one more thing regarding this in uh, Galatians 4. Paul then uh, points, looking back in Genesis, looking back at the barrenness of God's people then and the way God gave them children. But he then looks also to the prophecy of Isaiah regarding that which is barren now rejoicing. There in verse 27 of of, uh, Galatians 4, Paul cites Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1, and there we, we read this. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. 
Now, when, Isaiah, when Paul quotes this passage from Isaiah, and what kind of makes this um, difficult to, to summarize briefly, is that when Paul quotes this, he has not just in mind this one verse isolated from the whole book of Isaiah, but rather this one verse touches upon a major theme that runs through the whole book of Isaiah, the one in which those, um, the city of God had been desolate. In that sense, the city of God had become barren. It was common in Paul's day uh, to refer to the capital city, right, the place where your family and your, your, originated from, to refer to the capital city as, as a personified mother. Right? The, the, the capital city from which you came from was understood as, as your mother. Its citizens were its children. And so what the Apostle Paul is, is getting at here, drawing from Isaiah, is that the city of God had become barren. And had become barren in exile, right? God's judgment had come upon his people because of their sin, because of their rebellion, uh, because of their hard-heartedness. And they had been scattered among the nations. And in that sense, the city of God had become barren. Uh, its people were, were not there. It was empty. It was without children. Notice this in Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64, verse 10. It says, Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Right? That's the same idea of, of speaking of a city as barren. It's once populated city with all of its laughter and all of its commerce and all of its people walking the streets and, 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 and talking. All of that gone. Empty. God's judgment had come upon his people, and they had been scattered. The reason, as Isaiah says earlier in chapter 1, verse 4, is that they had been an evil seed, an evil people. Isaiah chapter 1 also speaks of them as a harlot going after other gods. And again, God's curses of his covenant had come upon the people of God, so that Jerusalem had been abandoned, desolate, even barren. Right, so that, that was the state of, of reality for, for God's people in exile, um, having um, gone and, and, been, and been taken captive among the nations, the city of God barren. But Isaiah doesn't just speak a message of judgment and a dark message, but into that darkness, into that judgment, he, he brings light. And he begins to preach good news to the people of God, that restoration will come, that that, that which was once barren, the city of God, will one day be populated and be filled with a people rejoicing again in their God, a people whose gladness is the Lord. And so Isaiah looks forward to this restoration that, that, the, that the city of God would again be filled with children. That's what Isaiah 54 verse 1, which Paul quotes, is getting at. But notice also Isaiah chapter 1 looks forward to the same reality. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 26. There we read of this future restoration of the city, right? Judgment will come, the city will be barren, but God will restore. It says there, I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness. The faithful city. Now, the 
Greek text that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. So uh, we're mostly reading as translated from the Hebrew here. But the Greek text that Paul read had this statement there. It said, the city of righteousness, the faithful mother city, Zion. And I think it's, it's this idea of, of the Zion, the city of God, the Jerusalem, being a mother and now being populated again with children. Though she once was as good as dead, right? Barren. In chapter uh, 5 of Romans, the Apostle Paul speaks of Sarah's womb before she gave birth um, as not only barren, but, but, but a grave. It was, there was deadness inside of her. The Apostle Paul uses the word necros, necromancer. Think of that. Think of dead. That's what was in, in, in Sarah's womb as an example of the city of God, barren, as good as dead. But Isaiah looks forward and says that yet she will live with her many children. As one commentator had said, Isaiah secures the certainty of this promise that the people of God will not die and that they will again inhabit the city of God. And the reason for that is the fact that would God the fact that what the God of Israel did in the past for Sarah, he will do in the future for barren Israel. And that's why Paul here speaks of an allegory. It's not necessarily an allegory in the sense that Paul is just taking a story and giving it new meaning. Uh, but what he sees here is, is a basic parallel. As God had provided for Sarah, so he will fill his, this, the mother city with children. Once barren now filled with children. And the point again in all of that, right, what Paul is trying to to hammer home to, to us is that it is God himself who will act. It's God himself who will do this. And he will do it not by human means, but by supernatural means acting and coming into our situation. Another person had said this, that Isaiah reminds Israel That just as God had intervened to transform Sarah from a barren woman, as good as dead, to a fruitful mother of many children, so he will transform Jerusalem, destroyed by sin, into a city that with a thriving population of righteous seed. Isaiah's proclamation draws a sense of continuity between the people of God in exile and the Jerusalem above in glory, right? That's what Paul is getting at here in Galatians chapter 4. And so the question then becomes, how then will this city be populated? How will God fill his city, the city he has prepared for his people, the city in which God's people enter to find him to be their everlasting joy? How does God taking people under judgment and exiled and restore them and bring them back? How will God do this? And that's the big question all throughout really the Old Testament, right? right? How will God accomplish this? How will he do this? Well, the Apostle Paul here shows us uh, the way by which he will do this. And it will come, this restoration will come, salvation will come, people will be brought back to God through Jesus Christ. That's Paul's point. Everything the Old Testament looked forward to, all of its hope, all of its dream, all that it anticipated, it now converges in Jesus Christ, who himself will be the means by which the city of God will thrive with a population of people 
righteous in the Lord, a people joyful in the Lord, a people uh, having God as their God, it will come through Jesus Christ and nothing less than his resurrection from the dead. Right, that's Paul's big point all throughout. And it's why he's been saying the flesh can't save you. Right, Your acts and your works and your obedience to the law can't save you. can't make you a citizen of the kingdom of God, the, the heavenly city. Nothing less than new life, nothing less than a supernatural resurrection from the dead can bring you back. Right, Again, barrenness and when God provides. All, again, in all of those instances in the Old Testament... Every time a barren woman produced, it, it, it was a sign pointing to a resurrection that is coming. A resurrection that was to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So how will the city of God be populated? How do I come to enter into the, to the city of God? To leave a world of, of sin and misery... Uh, to leave a place destined for death and destruction and to come into a city where there is life everlasting, into a city of glory unspeakable. What is the path there? By identifying myself with Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. And therefore the way into the city is not by works but by faith. Paul understood this very personally, right? Right? Because he had seen the risen Lord. He had seen the Lord, right, on, his road to, on the road to Damascus, persecuting the church, hunting the people of God. Christ himself meets with him. The heavens are open. Paul sees him. And he sees his glory. And it causes him then to renounce all the works of his hands, as if those could earn for him the glory that he beheld. Right, right. He, he saw what was before him. He saw and he knew that nothing of his own righteousness could ever obtain that. That before such glory, his righteousness, which he had taken great, great pride in, was nothing more than filthy rags. And so he renounces his old ways. He renounces his righteousness. He renounces all that he thought he obtained through obedience to the law. And he realized that it was by faith alone, believing in the Son being crucified with him and rising with him, that he would enter into such glory, that he would enter into the city of God. It's only by faith in the Son that we are made sons of the city of God. Only by faith in Jesus Christ. It's why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, right, uh, as a summary statement of his, of his being identified with Jesus, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Right? As he believed in Jesus Christ, his life was no longer his own. It was identified with Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus, like what is faith? Right? Right? We say by faith that we're saved. Well, what is this faith? Why does faith save? Because by faith you are linked, you are bound, you are, you are binded to Jesus Christ. His life yours, your life his, now found in him. So that you have died with him. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's on the basis of this reality that Paul 
can quote Isaiah and say, Rejoice, O barren one, one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Right? The city of God, once desolate, once barren, now because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, And all who have come to believe upon him, that city is today populated and being populated as people come to Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the heart of all that Paul has to say because it is a a bold statement. A declaration to this world that you cannot save and redeem yourself. Paul begins this whole letter, if you recall, by saying, Paul... An apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ informs all that Paul has to say. The resurrection of Jesus Christ says the law cannot save you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ says that salvation must come from God. And so faith, as we believe in Jesus Christ, we become citizens not of the Jerusalem below, but of the Jerusalem above where Christ is. That our homeland is not found here on earth. Here we are pilgrims. But our homeland is in heaven where Christ is. That is where we are headed. That is where our citizenship is, right? The Apostle Paul says our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior. The center of our lives, the core of our existence is not found here on earth, but with Christ in heaven. And therefore, right, the Apostle Paul draws that conclusion in verse 29 of Galatians 4. Brothers, like Isaac, you are children of promise. That's the point. And notice again, what he says here is a matter of fact. It's a statement of fact. You are. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, take great comfort and know that you are children of promise. You are children, not of the slave, but of the free woman. You are the children of God. Right? So you can see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ must inform everything. It changes everything. Because it talks to us and it spells out to us our own inability and our need for God to give, God to change, God to ultimately uh, redeem. The law cannot bring this about, Christ and Christ alone. Now, this reality that the Apostle Paul proclaims as the kind of culmination of his argument that began all the way back in chapter 3, verse 1, right? This is the the high point of his argument here. He wants the church to know this. And in light of this reality, he then exhorts the church, right? He, He exhorts us then and says that we are not then to live and be as children of the slave, bound by regulations, binding one another by regulations, and and this this stringent way of, of, of living. But rather, we are to enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ. He says there in verse 29, appealing uh, to uh, the Galatians regarding these false teachers that were saying, and, and saying um, taking them away from their freedom, and imposing upon them regulations and laws that they had been freed from. But notice what he says, verse 29. Just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh 
persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, right? So the children of Isaac are being persecuted by the children of Ishmael who were born uh, not to the free woman but to the slave. And so Paul's saying, again, drawing another parallel, he's saying, so also it is now, right? His point is saying that those uh, who are enslaved, those who continue under all the, the regulations of the law, are now trying to bring you back into slavery, trying to persecute you. Paul's saying, no, stand fast, therefore, in the freedom that Christ has won for you. Stand fast in the freedom that Christ has won for you. Now, the rest of Paul's letter is going to flesh out what that means. What does it mean to live in this freedom? Of course, it doesn't mean living a godless life or an unrighteous life or pursuing sin and being free to sin. Right? Paul's going to flesh out what it means to live in the freedom of Christ and by his Spirit. But here the Apostle Paul is warning against returning to slavery. As he says, verse 31, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And what this means then for the people of God is that we need to be careful for ourselves that we, we do not establish a kind of, this is how things must be, and this is the only righteous way of living, and, and, and set up for ourselves rules, and set up for us, ourselves certain laws, and say that if we have these laws and we follow these ways, then we can take confidence that we are righteous before God. No, our confidence comes from Christ alone, our faith in Him. But we also need to be careful that we do not begin imposing laws and regulations upon our brothers and sisters as well. There's a certain freedom of conscience to the Christian, to the believer's life. There's certain things that are very much required of us, certain things that are black and white. You can't do this. You, shouldn't, you should do this. Uh, but often there's many things in the Christian life that is a matter of wisdom, a matter of applying biblical truth to our situation, our circumstances. And so while something might be wise for you in a certain situation— to all of a sudden think that, that what was wise for me here now needs to apply to everybody and they must follow this as if this is the only course of action is to go back to slavery. It's not to live in the freedom that Christ has won for us. And so this will become more apparent and hopefully clearer uh, when we go into further sermons as well. But again, the Apostle Paul is desiring that we continue in the freedom to walk uh, by the Spirit. Of Christ. A life not under law, right? As he says, if you go back to verse 21, you who desire to be under the law, to depend upon the law, to rely upon it, rather we are to walk by the Spirit and in the freedom that Christ has won for us. This is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ requires then of us. And so the barren one now rejoices. The city of God is being populated, and your heavenly home uh, awaits you because Jesus Christ has gone there for you. And so reckon yourself, know yourself having been crucified to this world and alive in Jesus Christ and live in the freedom that Christ has won for you. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word, a word of freedom, a word of good news. That though your people have sinned against you and you have brought judgment upon them, scattering them among the nations, and yet, Father, you have restored them as you have promised and according to your grace and according to your power. 
Father, we thank you for acting and saving us. And we thank you, Lord, that you've done so in Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. Father, may we trust in him and believe in him. May we reckon ourselves dead, dead to this world and alive to you in Jesus Christ. May we too make it our confession that we have been crucified to this world, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. May we seek to honor and glorify him, the one who gave himself for us and who has loved us. And so may Jesus Christ be praised. And may we know ourselves citizens not of the Jerusalem below, but of the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, our great homeland, that we long to enter one day by faith alone, in Christ alone, by your grace alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.